the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today is the last and fourth and last Sunday of the month of Kiak, uh, where we are in preparation for the Nativity Feast, which is um, this coming week. And in this last week, we read about the birth of St. John the Baptist. Um, and specifically, there is a prophecy that Zacharias the priest, the father of St. John the Baptist, he utters after the birth and the circumcision of St. John, after they name him, uh, and his mouth is open. Remember, Zacharias the priest, he had become mute because um, he was not able to speak because he had doubted um, who, who this child was going to be at the beginning, and God had told him, you will not speak until he is born. So here we read about St. Zacharias, his, his mouth opening, and the first things that he begins to speak is a prophecy about who is uh, the Christ, because we know that the life of St. John the Baptist is very much linked with the life of, of Christ. He is the, the one to come before Christ to prepare the way for him. We read in verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is the beginning of the prophecy where um, St. Saint, Saint Zacharias is speaking this prophecy. We're going to look a little bit about some of the things that he mentions in this prophecy and how, how important it is. He mentions here that the, the Lord is the one who is visiting and redeeming, right? These are the two things he says. He's visiting and he is redeeming. Even the name of, of God, Emmanuel, the one to be born, to be called Emmanuel, means God is near. God was at all times present with his people in, in every place and all throughout history. And yet, it was difficult for the people to see him with the eyes of faith and to know his presence with them. And because he sent uh, prophet after prophet after prophet, sending the message of salvation to the people, but the people did not respond positively to these prophets, and actually the prophets were killed, they were rejected, they were not accepted, they were ignored. Um, so at the very end of days, God is sending his own son. This is similar to the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Uh, in that parable where you have um, a landowner who owns this vineyard, and he goes away and he leaves these stewards to be in his land to take care of the land for him. And then after some time, he sends some of the servants of his to his land to get some of the the, the harvest, to get some of the, the fruit that came from the vineyard. And yet these stewards who are in the vineyard, instead of giving part of the, the fruit to these servants who the master had sent, instead they killed them. And he kept sending servant after servant after servant, and they were getting killed. And so then he said to himself, well, I will then send my own son, because maybe then they would listen to him, they would respect him, and they would give him uh, of what is rightfully mine, of what the master is saying is rightfully his. So here, this is uh, this coming, this visitation of, of Christ, the Son of God, coming for the salvation of the people, because he is the only one who could save, that all the message of the prophets was ignored, and even actually, if it wasn't ignored, the prophets themselves were not the saviors. The prophets were simply declaring the message of, of salvation, of what the people were to do for salvation, but it is only Christ actually who could save. Because it says what he is the one who redeemed, right? He is, the re he is the redeemer. He is the one who is able to save us. So this is the first statement of his prophecy that he's saying, Christ, the one who is to come, the blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. He is coming now imminently, right? Um, he will visit and redeem his people. Um, 
We read about this redemption in Ephesians 1 verse 7 where it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. This redemption is going to come from the Lord through his shedding of blood, which of course is done at the crucifixion, which will bring the forgiveness of sins to all people. And this is a work of grace. It is a work of mercy. It's a work that is a gift of God, not that we had earned this gift, because in, in the book of Romans, St. Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ came to, to die for us. While we were still sinners. It is not that we reach some level of holiness or some level of goodness or some level of obedience. And then because we reach this mark or this standard or this milestone, that God now said, it is time for me to redeem the people. No, actually, he redeemed us even when we did not deserve redemption. Right? And this is the... This is the true sign of the redemption, of the salvation, of the grace. It is not because we could do anything good of ourselves, but God is the one who did all this from us, for us. Uh, St. Zacharias continues in this prophecy, and he says, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And we hear this a lot, this idea of horn of salvation. And maybe we don't really think about it, because when you think about it, it sounds kind of strange. What is a horn of salvation? How, how can there be a horn? When we speak about the horn, this is, this is like the horn of an animal, like the horn of a goat, you know, the horn of, 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 some, of a ram, the horn. What is, what is the horn of salvation, and what does it mean that this horn of salvation has been raised up? In the Old Testament, when God commanded that the altar be constructed, okay, we read uh, about this construction in Exodus 27, verse 2. It says, You shall make its horns, this is speaking about the altar table, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. Okay? Also, uh, as a part of the law of the sin offering, right? A person that had sinned would lay his hands on a bull, like symbolically transferring his sins to the bull. Okay? Then the bull would be slaughtered. And then it says in Leviticus 4, verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. Okay? So what is the horn? The horns of the altar, right? These are horns that are put on the altar, and whenever the blood of the bull, which was the offering for sin, would be placed on the altar and on the horns of salvation, people would ask for mercy, Right? By, and, 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 and this was part of the forgiveness of sins. This was part of the sin offering. So when someone would come and offer this bull, they would sprinkle the blood on the horns of the altar, and this was their forgiveness. Right? For us to say that Christ is a horn of salvation, it is linking Christ to this practice from the Old Testament of, of, of the idea of the, the sin offering. Like he is the ultimate sin offering, he is the horn of salvation. There's another incident that happened in the Old Testament regarding the horn of salvation. Um, <clears throat> when King Solomon's father, King David, when King David died, um, he had already said that King Solomon was going to be the king after him. But King Solomon had a brother whose name was Adonijah, and Adonijah wanted himself to be the king. So uh, there, was, there was a conflict between him and Solomon. In the end, after Solomon became the king, okay, Adonijah was afraid that King Solomon would now try to kill him because he had tried to take the throne from him. So it says in 1 Kings chapter 1, it says, Now Adonijah, 
was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Ananijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So it was the custom at the time that whenever someone is like running from someone who's trying to kill them for whatever reason, if they would run into the, the temple and they would take hold of the horns of the altar, then it's kind of like they are now redeemed. Like the person who is seeking their, their life could not kill them because now they have been redeemed through this seeking of the mercy of God through the horns of the altar. So the idea here that Christ is the horn of the altar, it means that we are all who are guilty, we are all who are sinners, we are all who, who have transgressed the command of God. We are holding on to Christ, who is the horn of salvation, and it is through holding on to him that we have salvation, that we have forgiveness of sins, just like in the Old Testament. So many of the things that God had commanded to be done in the Old Testament were intended to uh, prepare the people in their mind and their understanding of, number one, their need of salvation and the idea that all of the commandments of God were so difficult to obey and all the people were not obeying them. So they had to realize that God's standard is very, very high and they were unable to meet the standard. That's the first thing, actually, that, that God wanted the people to see is that they could not meet the standard of God. So then they would feel that they are in trouble that they were in need of some kind of salvation. They are in need of, 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 of a salvation from the consequence of the law, right? And so the, the horn of salvation, right, and, and fulfilled in the person of Christ, he is the one who would save the people from the consequences of the law, which is death, right? Death was the consequence of disobedience, right? And for us, for sin, the consequence of sin is death. Right? It says, for the wages of sin is death, in the book of Romans. So, so when we look at Christ, right, and we see him as the horn of salvation, we should see him as the one who has redeemed us from the consequence of our own sin. And this is the importance of the incarnation. Right? The incarnation is the fulfillment of this prophecy, the fulfillment of the plan of God from the very beginning, which was to save the people from their own disobedience. Yeah. In verse 70, uh, Zacharias, he continues uh, in his prophecy, and he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. So he is bringing, like he is connecting everything that has happened all throughout the history, of the recorded history in the scripture, to this event, which is the coming of the birth of Christ, in, in, at this time. This is why the incarnation is so important. You know, the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors, okay? And these prophets who came from the very, very beginning, whom God had sent, um, they themselves didn't understand the fullness of the prophecy. They didn't, themselves didn't understand everything that they were prophesying and what does it mean, right? They received the prophecy from God, and they said it without fully understanding. Even like, for instance, the Messianic Psalms, the Psalms that King David had written, that are prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, he, they're, they're, it was not understood. It was not understood at the time by the Jews. What, what did these Psalms mean? How is it that we should understand them and interpret them? This is why, again, that the idea that this person, Jesus Christ, who is to be born, is the fulfillment of all of this prophecy is a big deal for the Jews. When uh, Philip, 
when Philip, who became an apostle, he found the Lord Jesus Christ and he believed in him as being the Messiah. He went to Nathaniel and trying to speak to him about, you know, I, I saw Jesus Christ who is the one whom has been prophesied about in the law, the one who has been prophesied about, the one that we have been waiting for. All the Jews understood the prophecies. All the Jews knew that there was, a, there was going to be a Messiah who was to come. Of course, they didn't recognize him when he came, and they didn't think that he was going to come as a spiritual king. They thought he was going to come as a physical king. But they all were expecting someone, right? All collectively as a people, because they all understood the scripture was pointing to a special person who was to be born. So here, Zacharias is pointing to this special person. I want to emphasize the, the depth and the detail of the prophecies. Because sometimes we, we, we read the prophecies and we don't understand them. They're kind of vague and confusing. And so we don't really fully connect it with events that have happened. I want to read for you just a really small uh, uh, part in the, in the, wisdom, of, uh, the wisdom of Solomon. Okay? This is a prophecy actually that we read uh, during the Holy Week. You know, in the Holy Week, that's what all the readings of the Holy Week are what? A bunch of prophecies which are pointing to Christ and then the New Testament, and we see that the events actually unfolding, okay? This is one of the prophecies in the wisdom of Solomon. It says, therefore, let us encircle the just, because he is useless to us, and he is against our works, and he reproaches us with legal offenses, and makes known to us the sins of our way of life. He promises that he has the knowledge of God, and he calls himself the Son of God. For if he is the true Son of God, he will receive him and deliver him from the hands of his adversaries. Let us examine him with insult and torture, that we may know his reverence and try his patience. Let us condemn him to a most shameful death, for according to his own words, God will care for him. Right? This is a prophecy of the Old Testament speaking about some future event that's going to happen. And we see all of these things, uh, of course, happening in the life of Christ in his crucifixion and the, the, the suffering he experienced leading up to his crucifixion and so on. So the idea of the prophecies all connecting to the birth of some person who was about to be born, this was a very, very, very big deal in the, in the life of a Jewish person living at the time. He goes on and he says in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, right? This proclamation of salvation from our enemies is important for us to understand that the enemy exists. There is a real enemy, and the enemy is not what the Jews thought. The Jews thought that the enemy was like the other surrounding nations that sought to attack them, like the Greeks, for instance. The Greeks sought to annihilate the Jews. They wanted to enter into their country. They wanted to take over their culture. They wanted to stop the temple worship. We read about all of this, for instance, in the book of Maccabees. Uh, we see how, how the other nations uh, wanted to come and to consume and destroy and, and, and um, assimilate all of the, the Jews and their, and their culture and their faith. This is what the Jews thought when, when, whenever it's speaking about enemies, right? But we know that the enemy is not necessarily a physical enemy, but the enemy is a spiritual enemy. When, when Zacharias here is saying that we should be saved from our enemies, the enemy is the devil right? He is, he is the enemy. Um, the devil hates us, right? Because he hates God. The devil hates us because he hates God. We are of no value in ourselves, like to the devil. The devil doesn't care about us. 
The devil cares about hurting God, and the only way he can hurt an omnipotent, divine God is to by hurt is by hurting those whom he loves. God loves us, so the devil says, "Okay, if I hurt the humans that God created, this will hurt God." This is why he comes after us. This is why he tries to destroy us. Like a person who is very wealthy and very powerful, and you want to hurt this person, and you can't get to him because he's got so much security and he's got so much stuff. So what do I do? I go after his kids. I, I, I go after his kids. I, I, I kidnap his kids. I hold them ransom. right? And if I hold them ransom, then maybe I can get this powerful person to do something, to take an action, to give me what I want. right? Of course, we know that the God did not give the devil what he wants. But the, the principle is the same. The idea that the devil is our enemy because he seeks to hurt God. And so Zechariah here is saying that we are saved, right? We are saved from him who is more powerful than us because we are saved through the working of Christ in us. We are saved through the working of the Holy Spirit in us. It is the work of God that protects us from him. And even though he is more powerful than us, but we overcome him through the power of God. And then he says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, right? This idea of performing mercy, this is what Christ came. Even Christ in his incarnation, he said, what I did not come to judge, I came to save. I came for forgiveness. I came for mercy. Now is not the time for judgment. There will be a time when Christ comes for judgment. There will be such a time. But the time of the incarnation was not the time of judgment. It was the time of salvation. It was the time of mercy. It was the time for God to lift the people out of you know, the state that they're in and to show them that there is a better way. There's a better way to live. That even though they are struggling with sins and the burden of guilt that they had, that God came to remove this guilt, to remove this sin, to remove the consequence of the law, of the transgression of the law that they had, and he reminded them of their covenant that he had made with them, right? That he was to be their God and he was, and they were to be his people. He reminded them of a purpose that they had, of an identity, that they are not just people who are randomly living on earth, just living day to day to day. No, they are a people, the people of God whom God has chosen for a purpose. And so also God has chosen us. God has made himself known to us. God has accepted us into his family. God has made us to be his children. And so when we live in the world, we should not live like the heathen. We should not live like the world lives. We should not have the priorities of the world or care about the things of the world the way the world does. We should live separate from the world in the sense that, not that we are going to go live in the desert, but in the sense that my heart is not so attached to the world, but instead my heart is attached to God, to the things of God, because I love him as he loves me. I see his love for me in the way he has treated me, even though I do not deserve it, in the way that he has performed mercy, in the way that he has given me of what is his, even though I do not deserve what is his. And this makes me to, to look at him with eyes of, of love, to see his gentleness, to see his compassion, right? It's, this is what Christ came for, is to perform mercy. Verse 74, he says, To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Right? So this is, this is, we are now going to serve the Lord, right? Because we know him and he knows us. We want to serve him. Because we see his love for us, we want to serve him. We want to sacrifice for him. We want to give of ourselves to him because of who he is, because of what he has done for us. And we do so without any fear. 
even though we understand the power of Satan, even though we understand the difficulties in the world, even though we know there is tribulation in the world, even though we know there is suffering, but we live without fear because ultimately we know that we are protected by Christ. We are protected by Him. And so we have no reason to be afraid that regardless of what might happen in this world, there is a conqueror of the world, God who has overcome the world, Christ who came and said He has overcome the world. And then he prepares a way for us. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. St. John the Baptist is the one who prepared the way for Christ. Okay, He was the one who taught us about the baptism. Right, The baptism was the means of preparation. St. John would go and he would preach right, to the people, and then he would tell them what? Be baptized for the remission of your sins. This was not the sacramental baptism that Christ baptized with. This is not the same kind of baptism that we have in the church, right? The baptism we have now, when we are baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit. We, we die and are resurrected with the Lord. The idea here with this baptism, it was a symbolic baptism for the remission of sins. That people came believing in the message that St. John the Baptist was preaching, and they decided to be baptized in acknowledgement and acceptance of this, of this message in preparation for the coming of Christ, with the true baptism. But here, this is the preparation. When we come to, to God and he asks us to be baptized, this is a renewal. This is uh, a change of life. This is a new direction, a new focus that God is preparing us to be with him in heaven. And then finally, in verse 79, it says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, right? To give light, to illuminate, right? Maybe we are living in darkness. Our world certainly is darkened, is confused, is ignorant, is, is, is oblivious of the truth, and living according to their lusts, and living according to a different set of priorities than God's priorities altogether, right? Christ came to enlighten this darkness, right, to those who are living in sin. And we are called to be bearers of the light, because just as Christ said that he is the light of the world, he also said about us that we are the light of the world. How is it that we are both the light? Because we are the reflection of his light. We bear his light and bring it to the world so that those who would, would believe in him, just as we believe in him, that just as he is holy and righteous, we through reflecting of his holiness and righteousness, the world sees the holiness, the righteousness, the love of God through us. So this is the peace and this is the light that God brings into the world. And he wants to do it through the church. He wants to do it through, through us. So he guides us. He guides us in this path for the illumination, not only of ourselves, but for also the entire world. So this moment of the incarnation that we are celebrating in the Feast of the Nativity is such uh, a special feast. The, the Theophany actually is the one that used to be um, the, the, the major feast that was uh, celebrated in the church because it was the feast of, that introduced the baptism which goes to this point of like coming, coming to Christ in baptism and preparation. Um, so may God grant us the, the light to be able to see him. And so through seeing him, we are able to share this light with the world. And glory be to God forever. Amen.